0: G'day, it's time to talk about Australia's favourite obsession, property. My name's Jeremy Cowan, and in this podcast, it's where I get to talk about one of my favourite topics, and one that Australia is, and always has been obsessed with. So I'm super excited about this project. I've been thinking about it for a while. Some might even say, obsessing about it, and we're finally here. We're finally out of the blocks, and what a time to be investing, owning, and talking about property. See there's just so much for us to cover and my ambition here is to take us all on a journey. We'll be joined by some regular guests as well as meeting some very special guests along the way. Each episode will have a specialist in a particular field related to property, but maybe not exactly what you might always expect. I'd like to welcome my good friend James Pledge to our podcast today. James has been involved in the valuation industry for over 30 years, is a director of Knight Frank Valuations. He served on the South Australian Divisional Council of the Australian Property Institute, was then elected to the National Council and served as the president of the National Property Institute. He was recently awarded a life fellowship of the Australian Property Institute. James, it's a privilege to have you along. You're a knowledgeable bloke when it comes to the area of valuations and uh, especially the fact that it's been over the case of a couple of cycles. So, James, welcome to Property, Australia's Favourite Obsession. Thanks, Jezza. Thanks for having me. Very good. So the first question I've got to ask is, are you obsessed with property? Yeah, I think I am. I think I am. uh,
1: I've always loved, I think it might even be the the voyeur in me that loves walking through people's houses and seeing how other people live and what they've done to their houses and, uh, you know, just getting ideas about W- w- what we could do next.
0: Is it something that gets under your skin, in your blood, that you just kind of can't get rid of? Yeah, I think it is.
1: I think it is. It's, it's, it's all pervasive. You know, everything we do is somehow linked back to property. You know, it doesn't matter where you live
0: or park your car or, or work. That's exactly right. That's the entire theme of our podcast here. Now, the valuation industry, it's a very broad industry. Homes, medical centres, shopping centres need to be valued, aged care. Uh, childcare, plant equipment, residential developments, the list goes on and on. Yet you chose to specialise in pubs and leisure assets. Is that a perk of being a director of Knight Frank or was it a strategic a strategic decision you made whilst you are at uni studying your um, Bachelor of Business? Um, I think you
1: oscillate to what you love and I do love having a drink and standing in a bar and observing what's going on so i think it was only natural that given the opportunity uh, to to value those sort of assets i i, I chose it because uh, it's fun you know yeah. it's uh, it, everybody's having a fun uh, having a good time in a pub or if they're staying in a motel they're either you know on holidays oh, yeah. or traveling and most of us accept, Do enjoy that yeah side that's of right the
0: exactly different side of your life different experience yeah when did you decide that property was your thing? Uh, probably not
1: long out of school. I, I was lucky enough to do some working experience with um, Rob Younger and Michael Brock mm-hmm. uh, back in the days. Not many people remember, but it was, uh, Brock Younger was a business that was around in the uh, 80s. They're a very
0: big real estate agency here in South Australia.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I got the opportunity to work with them when they just went out on their own. Uh, I was in year 10 and... Uh, I think my job was to go and get the pies and pasties during the open (laughs) inspections, hand out a couple of brochures and I really enjoyed that whole experience of of going through houses and and watching the sales process and and analysing what was going on and given the opportunity after school I studied for my degree and then ended up uh, working for those guys again.
0: Yeah, right. So you see the property industry from quite a different perspective from what most people do as a valuer. What does a valuer actually do? What is their role?
1: A valuer's role is to interpret what's happening in the market. So uh, intrinsically, we're looking backwards, uh, but with the knowledge of what's happening today. So to, to put in a simplest, uh, we, we look at what a house might sell for, yep. we compare it to the property that we're looking at to mm-hmm. value, and we add and subtract uh, value depending on its pros and cons in comparison to the we're valuing. So direct comparison, making comparisons, interpreting the market is the simplest way to, to describe valuation.
0: Because that's one of the things that sets property apart, that it isn't a homogenous asset like um, you know, BHP shares or, or copper or, or anything else that you want to look at. You know, every Every piece of property, land, has its own individual locational advantage and disadvantages. And so from that point, it's, you know, it's not necessarily... Uh, it, well, I'm trying to ask, is it a science as much as it is uh, an art form?
1: I think in um, residential property, it's, it is a bit of an art form because there is so much emotion tied up in buying a home. The, the, how how do you measure the emotion of somebody whose mm. wife standing next to him at an auction and says, "I really want this house. I just yeah. want this house," yeah. as opposed to the more clinical um, approach of a commercial investor who who is looking at the bare numbers. Th- there may be some emotion in in terms of you know the market's hot, the market's not, yep. but it's not that that um, pure. Uh, family emotion that, that comes with with buying a home so th- there is there is a lot of science but you can you, you can't measure that emotion as accurately as as you can a um, you know a yield or a, a yeah. or a return on a share
0: and especially with those sort of more clinical styled assets the the input costs, you know, you're much more known, isn't it? You, you know what your cost of borrowing, what your cost of funding is. Yeah. Um, as opposed to whether how much someone's leveraged and, as you said, the emotional attachment to it. Yeah. Um, so can you describe the sort of work that your business does, Knight Frank? Can you tell us about Knight Frank?
1: Yeah. In, uh, and my business um, is, is predominantly uh, South Australian, the one that we're involved in. Um, We value everything from sheep stations, cattle stations, to planes, trains, automobiles, yellow uh, metal diggers, as the kids would call them. Um, My boys love those diggers. Yeah, one of my sons wanted to be an orange digger driver. Why (laughs) why orange? I'm not sure. Uh, To pubs, clubs, motels, and then more traditional real estate, office buildings, industrial, retail shopping centres, hospitals... Health and aged care, and then we've got a, a quite a large team who just specialise in residential homes. So, the full gamut, anything to do with real estate, we generally touch.
0: Yeah, okay. And Knight Frank itself um, is a international firm. Um, where does it sort of have its origins? And tell us about Knight Frank itself. And I guess where I'm leading to that too is, I want to ask you then about um, the logo. ...of Knight Frank, which I think is really quite a fascinating little piece of trivia.
1: Yeah. Um, Knight Frank was started by uh, Mr Knight and Mr Frank and Mr Rutley... ...in England in the 1800s. Um,
0: so Mr Rutley's got the short end of the deal by the sound. Well, it was,
1: yeah, well, that's right. It was Knight Frank Rutley and they shortened it. He, yeah, I don't think he was around uh, to, to see the demise of his name... ...but uh, it, worldwide we adopted a pure Knight Frank name in uh, in the 2000s. Um, they, they started a commercial uh, real estate firm in, in the 1800s. They were known for selling uh, commercial real estate, but in the UK we're very much known as a high-end, high-street residential firm. So 60% of the turnover in the UK would be large homes. So it's it's said that if Buckingham Palace was ever put on the market, Knight Frank would get the sign at the front. That's yeah. That's the sort of... Gravitas of the brand in the UK and Europe, um, and they, you know, they they were obviously quite successful. They sold things like Stonehenge. They sold Winston Churchill his house. Mm-hmm. They sold a whole village um, in England at one stage. They've 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 done lots of things, and as time's gone on, they've uh, expanded the network. And in Australia, we were known as Night Frank, uh, Night Frank, in the 80s and. Uh, gradually the brand has has evolved to to be known as night frank it's purely night frank around the world
0: yeah okay okay and tell me i'm going to put a um a link in the show notes to uh, obviously your details but also the uh the logo itself it's um uh, i can't believe that i looked at that logo for so long and i i just never twigged with me so do you want to
1: us through that explain the logo yeah i am not sure how how it evolved but if you look at it closely um it's actually the hotels from the monopoly board uh turned inside out so the points are obviously pointing at each other um and as you say you know you look at it and you'd go, oh, that's you know, that's the night Frank logo. It's a pretty until logo, and, and that's yeah, it. It's until you, you somebody says that to you, you don't actually realise where it came from.
0: And as soon as you see it, it becomes very clear. And I think that shows um, quite a deep understanding actually uh, about the brand and um, the knowledge within the business. Actually, that yeah. Um, yeah I mean, obviously, we understand. or we like the the idea of monopoly. Um, land is a monopolist you know, asset, you know, mm. you get uh, bestowed with the, uh, the government-granted right. So I think that works really well. So yeah, have a look at that, it's, it's quite interesting. It's a, it's a good little thing. So coming back to, to the business itself, um, who commissions your work?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, varied, uh, varied, uh, wide and varied. Um, in markets like South Australia, probably 80% of what we do is commissioned by banks. So we're doing mortgage valuations for potential purchases. Um, sorry, for purchases uh, for um, people refinancing into maybe cheaper rates or a better deal, um, or restructuring. Uh, then the the remaining twenty percent could be for any reason you could name. You know, um, death, um, divorce. Yeah. Uh, capital gains, tax purposes, a court action, um, trust work where we're valuing large assets for superannua- superannuation funds or REITs, um, so pricing the assets for them. Yep. Um, all sorts of weird and wonderful reasons um, that we get involved, but in, in, a, in a market like South Australia, it's, it's very much um, the bulk of what we do is driven by finance.
0: So what about the rest of uh, Australia? I mean, I know you do quite a bit of interstate work, you might be South Australian based, but yeah. you, you do a lot of interstate work, how does that?
1: Yeah, so in a market like Sydney, where every second bu- building's worth a billion dollars, they our teams there very much concentrate on, on reed work, so um, most of that market's owned by people like Dexas ISPT, yep. you know, AMP Capital, mm-hmm. um, and because of the structure of those funds, they require uh, quarterly valuations and yearly valuations to price the assets, so that yeah. when you and I or, or anybody's buying into a reit, yep. it's priced at the at,
0: or, or well, they, they understand get, the intrinsic value. That's of right. The, of the net, assets. net tangible the asset. assets. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, and then th- there's you know. D- Developers need work. Uh, th- th- each market is, market is slightly different. Brisbane is slightly different to, to Sydney and slightly different to Melbourne um, in terms of what drives drives business. But um, it, it's, it's generally um, uh, fund work, you know, REIT work or finance work is the majority of what we do. Is doing.
0: there much that's done by the... A, just a straight residential purchase? Do sort of, you get much of that work or is it most of the, the valuation work you do is via the banks?
1: So pr- pre-purchase advice is, is a growing mm-hmm. industry, a growing segment in our industry where somebody might come to us and say, we want to buy this house and th- they want to get an understanding, one, what they should pay for it yep. and two, what they can borrow. Yep. Um, we tend to get involved more once the transactions happened Mm -hmm. and uh, the purchase has gone to the bank and needs the funding and the bank will instruct us direct there tends to be a self-confidence in purchases that they'll get they'll get the number right and then we we get involved after the event um and that's that's you know how the market operates and and has done for a long time
0: what about in the commercial market is that the case there
1: yeah it that's we get involved more uh because there's a lot more you know, stringent due diligence. Yeah, that's right. And, and there's bigger numbers involved, generally. So yeah. if um, a large fund's buying an asset, which in Adelaide might be a you know $100 million building, they they would generally want to know what the answer is going yep. uh, to be prior to committing that sort of funding. So we, we're part of the due diligence process, as you said, um, and helping them
0: come to the point where they decide what they'll pay. So... Can you give us an example, maybe, um, of something you might have done in Sydney or Melbourne um, in that bigger capital markets?
1: Um, I know that uh, Knight Frank were uh, intimately involved in Belangaroo in Sydney. They have given – well, my colleagues have given lots of advice to Menelis and the the other developers involved in that market um, around – the, the end value of some of those massive buildings that that um, KPMG Westpac have gone into.
0: Were they involved in the valuation of the um, highest selling off the plan um, uh, unit sale that occurred at Barangaroo, the 130 million dollars? Uh, well, I think that we, seemed like a hell of a price for me. Yeah,
1: well, I think we might have sold it. So uh, <laughs> uh, we 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 can't value and sell <laughs> in the same market, unfortunately. But. Um, from a commercial perspective we've certainly had lots of involvement in that and um, the the redevelopment uh, in circular key um, we've certainly had plenty yeah. to do with that um, and in Melbourne um, one of my business partners in Melbourne is probably valued most if not you know three quarter, well most of the large residential towers that have gone up yeah okay uh, in Melbourne um, he's you know, he's well known in Melbourne as as the the, the best value in that
0: residential the Tower King. Yeah, that's right. From a um, from a commercial point of view, uh, how would you go about doing how would you go about uh, how would you go about creating a valuation?
1: Yeah. Um, so that's that's a really broad question uh, because every asset is slightly different. If we if we pick on a, you know, reasonably simple uh, office building, that has a lease to a, you know, a, a well-known group of accountants. Say, you know, yep. uh, a,
0: so a grade uh, A. We're talking yeah. top-tier, blue-chip style that's right. investment um, asset.
1: That's right. So th- there's there's two two basic methods for, for an asset like that. If it if it was um, say fifty million dollars, we'll just pick that as a as a, a price point. Capitalization of the net return. Mm-hmm. So applying a capitalisation rate to the return after all tax and other costs that you can't recover from the tenant um, would be one of the primary methods and then a discounted cash flow um, pr- typically over 5 to 10 years which where you're trying to build in all the variables that, that um, might influence value where capitalisation is a reasonably blunt instrument 0.25% you know, uh-huh. in the capitalisation rate can make a huge difference in value yeah the the discounted cash flow is trying to smooth out that blunt blunt instrument and build in a whole lot of factors which go to to um deriving
0: value so how would that differ then from you going out and valuing um a hotel or a pub that has got a lot more or got different moving parts yeah
1: and and it's really about how the market treats the asset we're trying to imitate the market so in the case of the office building, the investor who's buying that is reasonably sophisticated and would treat it in the same way we're trying to value it. In the terms of a pub, um, we're imitating how a publican is, yeah. go- is going to, to go and value that business. And they look at it on the basis of what money they can get out of it uh-huh. and what multiple they're willing to pay. Yeah. It's, a, it's as simple as that. And that is driven by the broader market.
0: Yeah, Okay. That's uh, interesting so there's obviously different sorts of valuations that can occur Um, full valuations desktop valuations um, bank market valuations can you give us a bit of an idea of why what's the difference and why are those you know why are there different styles of valuations that can be done
1: yeah It, it probably comes back to the risk and, and the, the level of um, uh, weight that's going to be pa- placed on that valuation. There's a, over the last 15 years, there's been a big push to desktop valuations, particularly from finance, mm-hmm. um, and it really goes to the risk of that asset. So if you've got in the metropolitan centres around Australia, you know, reasonably uniform suburbs where mm-hmm. prices are yep. reasonably stable, um, and somebody's borrowing 50%, there's no reason why a desktop valuation can't be undertaken and give the bank or the lender or mm-hmm. whoever it might be a, a good level of reliance yeah. a, a, and they're willing to, to accept a lesser report for the risk that... Yeah, so the risk versus
0: the cost of... Yeah, that's right. Doing a full value. Yep. Whereas
1: if a first-time owner's buying a house and borrowing 95% mm-hmm. in a... In a developing suburb that that probably hasn't got, um, you know, isn't underpinned by good infrastructure or is on the edge of a suburban area and and could fluctuate if the market was changing, yep. then they'll, they'll pay plenty for for the the quality advice. That means that they're not going to lose money in the end, or or they can mitigate the, the risk of, of losing money if the the owner or whoever that is borrowing the money happen to. To fail or, or yeah, not default. not be able to you know, pay the
0: line back. So when you say um, you know in that context that that by definition or, or essentially a valuer is trying to imitate the market, um, and by definition you know you're trying to look at the current climate of those um, purchases and 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 sellers. Um, but by definition you've got to look backwards. What happens when you're in a roaring bull market where there's a lot of euphoria about property prices or when you have the potentially the opposite where there's an exit um, and you've, you've got a falling market? How, how does that affect your approach um, and the reliability of the valuation itself?
1: Yeah, so valuation isn't perfect for all the reasons we've talked about in the residential Uh, sense that the emotion is hard to measure and because of the legislation, the various court cases that have occurred over Uh almost well over 100 years in Spencer's case, um, we are limited to what we can take into account yep. legally and, and also as a, from a professional. So in a really rapidly rising market, we're probably going to be behind the market slightly and that's yep. why it's so important for us to uh, analyse the latest sales. Yep. In, in a market which is going either up or down quickly, yep. you really need to be at the absolute coalface of what's happening, talking to the participants rather than, walking back six months because then mm-hmm. you really will lag what's yeah. ha- what's happening in a particular market. So there is a risk that either way rising or a falling market, you're going to lag the movement a bit but the, the skill of the valuer is to be um, at the coal face talking to the right people, understanding what's happening in that marketplace um, but you never you're never going to be, um, as a valuer, if the market is moving really quickly and you valued a property at $100, the next one sen- sends sells for $110. Y- you're not wrong. It's just the point in time that you're that you're um, picking as as the valuation date.
0: Yeah, and that emotional side of it too makes it difficult, doesn't it? I mean that I mean that would make it hard from a valuation point of view when at times you will have participants who will pay over and above the odds because of an emotional um uh, and the exuding emotional factor of them you know of excitement etc so they they're not necessarily paying what the market would typically deem uh, an appropriate price and,
1: and that's where it's also important to look at the broader market you know pinning pinning all your hopes on one sale and saying that's yeah. you know that's where the market's at uh, for all the reasons you've just talked about, you're trusting that the two participants in that transaction. transaction have got it exactly right, whereas looking at a basket of sales and say, well, does that, yeah. does that all line up? Um, are they all within a, you know, a reasonable tolerance? Mm-hmm. Is far more accurate than actually what you should do as a professional.
0: So you spoke before that a lot of your work is generated um, from uh, the bank's, Derived from the banks, um, would you say that, as a valuer, that that you're sensitive to change in banking policies?
1: Uh, not not so much as it affects value. Certainly, uh, how we present reports and the information that's in our reports have changed immensely. In the you know the, the, when I started thirty years ago, the reports were pretty much a, a short short letter. Um, They weren't, but that's what they feel like now. Whereas we're producing 60-, 70-, 80-page documents for reasonably straightforward assets, you know, in a commercial sense. And um, uh, a long-form report for a residential might run to 15 pages because of the amount of information that's required by the person reading it because they need to tick so many boxes within banking policy which once again has been derived or, or directed by others so yeah it, it's not so much the value that it has changed it, it's the information that we're providing as a risk tool yep. to the bank within the report
0: so has technology impacted that a lot
1: yeah absolutely the the collection of the data the the way the reports are, um, are presented you know as little as five years ago we would bind up Three hard copies and ship them off to to the client. I don't think we 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 wouldn't give a client an actual hard copy of a report once a month. If that they're they're electronic documents PDF'd uh, and they're very much risk in in the sense of what we're providing banks risk assessment tools. Some of them don't even uh, would wouldn't even represent a report if you were reading it as a layperson.
0: Yeah. Okay. So. Have you noticed, like, you've been a valuer for 30-plus years. Um, Have you noticed that during different stages of the... what we would describe as the boom-bust cycle, um, a difference for or change in bank appetite and um, has that impacted the valuation industry along the way?
1: Yeah, I think probably my observation of of the bank's behaviours during a boom-buff cycle is they generally hasn't haven't got it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not being critical, it's just how the cycles seem to roll through yep. large organisations. So at the top of the market where everybody's going gangbusters, sales tends to override credit. Yes. Uh, exactly when credit should actually be- Overriding uh, sales. sales. And at the bottom of the market, where the risk of further falls and the risk to to the banks is probably at its least, mm-hmm. um, credit gets hold of the bank and you know you, we're not lending and we' you know yeah. we're we're looking at things a lot deeper than we might at the top of the market and if you think that through it's the complete opposite of what should be happening yeah um, but it it seems to happen at, at each cycle
0: yeah, I mean we see it and understand it from a almost a I guess an anecdotic sort of um, uh, view, whereas you actually get to see it occurring. I mean, mm. you, you know, have those cold face discussions with the banks and, and credit every day of your life. So it's interesting that um, um, that, that 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 does occur. Um, so but let's draw. So let's sort of draw this all together, um, James. Just before we wrap up, I've got to ask you you've been around for a long time what are some of the very strange assets that you've been asked to value or have you seen being valued
1: i think the probably the first thing that i ever got sent out to do was a uh, acid dumping pit in uh, the back blocks of uh, salisbury Uh, and i'm i'm not sure that the my boss at the time actually knew what it was when he sent me out there but i it was almost like something out of the movies, you know, guys sitting there <laughs> ageing before your eyes uh, as people were dumping acid into a hole. Um, and I'm not sure I actually knew what I was doing and I'm pretty sure I didn't get it right, but it was an interesting experience. Pro- and and more recently uh, we've been asked to value the rights over a phone tower which actually stick into some common space in strata Corp. So h- how do you determine who should get income from a phone tower that is actually rooted in somebody else's land but invades the, the air rights of, a, of another of another party. owner? Yeah, so um, there is always something that comes along that you shake your head at and go, how, how, how am I going to treat this?
0: That's actually a really good way to actually wrap this conversation up because it sort of shows... Um, there's so many different facets from a valuation point and there's so many different assets that can intertwine and interlock Um, I mean my hope is that you know you're not a stranger to our show that we can have you and also some of the specialists within your team actually back to talk about some of those things that um, you know talk about you know water rights and air rights and 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 farming agricultural land and how those valuations are derived and and the impacts of them and also how those sectors and the markets actually are moving, um, you know, in accordance to their own cycles um, outside of what we traditionally think is the traditional property markets or residential property markets, I should say. So um, I'm really looking forward to having you back. Um, If people want to get in contact with you to discuss valuations or have any questions to you, what's the best way of getting in contact with you, James?
1: Uh, best way is to, to uh, look at our website. Yep. Um, my details are in there. Uh, it's not the easiest thing to navigate, but uh, you will find us. Alternatively, um,
0: Night Frank South Australia. Um, it's in the phone book. We'll um, I'll drop all the uh, all your details in the show notes below, of course. Um, I look forward to having you again. There's obviously a lot for the valuation space that we really want to cover off. So. I thank you for your time. Um, Also thank everyone else who's joined us in our podcast today. Um, We'd love to help you on your journey. Um, We're passionate about investing and and growing your wealth. Uh, We also love your feedback. Uh, This is the first one we've done. So drop our producer, James, an email. That's not James' pledge you've got here, but our producer, James Flack, james at countandflack.com. Tell all your friends about us and look forward to um, our next episode. Until then, thank you, James, for joining with me today, and of course, let's all just keep obsessing about property. Thanks, Jessup. Thank you, Jimmy. You've been listening to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. Any opinions, views, or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and should be considered general in nature, as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. Count and Flack may have a commercial relationship with some guests appearing on this podcast. Your host, Jeremy Cowan and Cowan Flack Pty Limited, are authorised representatives of PDW Financial Services Proprietary Limited, AFSL 384713.